have a Bible, go ahead and grab it out. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 53, because uh, we're going to pick it up in Isaiah 52. If you're in the back corner, the back eastern corner, I'm sorry, can't read your Bibles, it's dark, we don't know why. So, uh, if you grab your phone, uh, the Church on the Rock Homer app uh, does have a Bible built in, uh, you can read along there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can always grab one from our info table, that's our gift to you, you're welcome to keep it, take it with you. Um, let me give you just a little bit of idea where we're going this morning, and then I'm going to read for you a fairly lengthy piece of passage that's just so good that I, I just have to read it to you. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to uh, dig down deep into the heart of the gospel message. Uh, this is a series on the foreshadowing of the new covenant, foreshadowing of a Savior uh, coming out of the the old set of promises, the old arrangement, as you will, into the new arrangement, the new covenant, or the new set of promises. There are many teachings where maybe it's wisdom for life and relationships. Um, this is a teaching where we're going to dig down a little bit further into really the heart, the, the, the meat of the gospel message. Um, some of you maybe have read the book by uh, C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces. Uh, it's a novel uh, written by uh, C.S. Lewis. It's a story. And in this story, the, the main character of the story is Queen Arul. And the queen uh, uh, is the narrator of the story, and she writes this story as a complaint against the gods because she feels the gods have been unfair, they've been unkind, they've been abusive in their demands, they have consumed too many resources and provided so little in return. And so she writes her life story as a testament against the gods. Well, there's a scene in this, uh, in the story, where uh, she describes a dream and in her dream, her father, who had actually since passed, her father uh, grabs her out of her bed and, and takes her into the courtroom uh, or the, the king's chamber. And it mentions in the story that she did not have her veil. Queen Arul always wore a veil because she was physically deformed and did not want people to see her. Her father grabs her out of her bed, drags her into sort of the throne room, the king's chambers, and he says, I want you to pull up the floor. And so she, she pulls up the floorboards, and there's a hole. And he says, I want you to jump down in that hole, and she jumps down into the hole, and uh, there's the, the king's chamber room again, but it's made of earth, and it's smaller. And he says, I want you to dig, and she digs into the ground and discovers there's, it, it opens up and the king says, I want you to jump through the hole and she lands down and now it's a smaller version of the king's chamber and it's all made of stone. And there in the king's chamber, he drags her over and, and forces her in front of the mirror without her veil. And in the dream, he says, who are you? 
And she looks in the mirror in her dream and sees the face of this God that she has despised. And in that moment, she realizes who she has become. She's become all of the things that she hates. She has consumed the lives of other people, taken without giving, without giving. When we dig deep into the gospel, there's two things that always happen simultaneously and need to happen simultaneously. One is that we discover more about the character and nature of God. And the second is we see ourselves more clearly. And I want to speak to a specific audience this morning. This is the word of God, so this will be relevant to everyone, but I want to speak to one group in particular. I want to speak to the group that maybe has been avoiding looking directly at either one of those for some time. Maybe you've been avoiding looking directly at God. And what I have found is that when we avoid looking directly at God, it's usually because of some shame or guilt or unnecessary uh, burden that we bear. And at the same time that we avoid looking directly at God, we avoid looking directly in the mirror at ourselves. Those two always come hand in hand when we dig into the heart of the gospel. We better understand who God has made me to be, and I better understand who he is as God. When Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he said the Spirit will come and he will convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Bad, good, therefore judgment. The Spirit is doing that now in your hearts. And for some of you, the task of walking out, living out the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God in my own life has been challenging. And you have not looked long and hard at the face of God. You have not looked long and hard in the mirror, maybe for some time, because it's just been too much, maybe too much failure maybe too much shame. I want to speak to you this morning. Let's dig down into the gospel. Sound like a plan? Yes. Let's do this. I'm going to read you a chunk of scripture. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. I'm going to begin in Isaiah 52. I'm going to read through this and I'm going to offer just a couple little uh, uh, clarifications as we go. I feel like I should do my stretches, my reading stretches. All right, I'm ready. I don't know if you are, but Isaiah 52, verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord means the strength of God. Who has witnessed the power of God? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, just like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, this is a question. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? Who would have thought His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Oh man. Written somewhere between five and six hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. 
Let me give you a little context. We've touched on this over the last couple of weeks. What did the Old Testament accomplish? What did the Old Covenant accomplish? What was, like, what was the end result of that set of promises, the law, the prophets? Where did we end up after all of that? Well, the scripture makes it very clear. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the, of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we have hundreds of years of history of, of God interacting with the people of Israel on display, recorded for us. And if you were to, if you were to breeze through that many uh, generations of history, there's one stunning conclusion that the Bible says that we arrive at, and that is, is that after, after laying out in great detail uh, uh, God's righteous requirements, his law that reflect his character and his heart, after laying it out in great detail, after providing generation after generation uh, with reminders and leaders to lead them into obedience to that law, we have come to this conclusion. We are all lawbreakers. That's the end result. That was what the law accomplished, is it made us all guilty. And if you read through the whole Old Testament, uh, we're now towards the end, in Isaiah, we're towards the end of that history. If you read through that whole story, you arrive at this conclusion, we are in trouble. We are doing a really bad job at this. I remember uh, my, my, my dad uh, read through the Bible stories uh, all of my years growing up. We did fa family devotions together, and my dad would read through the stories in the evening. And I remember as a child hearing the stories and thinking, man, these guys are terrible. Like, they need to get it together. None of them have a clue. I mean, it's so simple. He says, if you obey me, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's there's curses. Just pull it together and walk in obedience. My goodness, these stories are exhausting. But the law only serves to make us aware of our sin and its power in our lives. Galatians 3, 23 and following. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We were kept uh, chained being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So the law shows us through our inability to walk in obedience to it, the law proves to our hearts again and again and again our desperate need for a savior, for assistance, for some other plan other than here's the right thing to do and go do it. He says, the law, all it did was, was, was hold you in bondage until the time of Christ came. It pointed you towards him. It taught you this. You need something more. You need a savior, a messiah. You need a rescuer. The law always and only makes lawbreakers. Just for curiosity's sake, so that we're all comfortable with each other. 
how many of you have ever been surprised at your capacity for law-breaking? <laughs> like you did it better than you thought you would. Like you did it more than you thought you would. God is not surprised. This is the conclusion of the law. The law always and only makes lawbreakers because we do not have the capacity to uphold the law. In fact, every time that I have focused intensely on meeting the righteous requirements of the law in order to prove something about the kind of person that I am before God, I end up supplying evidence for the prosecution against me. You ever notice that? Like, okay, I'm really, 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 this time, I promise God, I'm going to do this really right. It's the last time I messed that up. I have proved who I am many times over. Just ask my wife. So which kind of lawbreaker are you? What's the thing that makes you a lawbreaker again and again? Is it that you have out of control anger? Are you the one that loses it in a rage even though you said that it would never happen again? You told yourself you were gonna keep your mouth shut next time and then you just lost it. Isn't that fun? It's terrible. Are you a worrier? Is that the thing that makes you a lawbreaker? I mean, we know the scripture says we're not to worry. It's a command. Do not worry. Simple enough. Are you the one that finds yourself gripped by fear of tomorrow, of what may come? I'm not like necessarily prone to fear, but I remember after having children, there's that moment where you walk in in the morning to wake them up and you look at them in their bed asleep and you think, I really hope they're alive. You know what I'm talking about? You watch for the breathing. There's so many things to be afraid of. Is that what makes you a lawbreaker is worry, anxiety, and fear? Maybe it's lust of the eyes. Maybe it's your uh, inability to rein in your sexual appetites. That's the thing that continually makes you a lawbreaker again and again. And you've said so many times, that's not going to continue. Now is going to be different. I'm going to keep the righteous requirement. I'm going to prove that I can do it. Maybe it's finances. You find yourself over and over violating what you know to be God's requirements in regards to your money. And you intend to do differently. You plan to do differently. You promise to do differently. And yet, there you are again, proving yourself to be a lawbreaker. Maybe it's substance abuse. <clears throat> Maybe it's 
whatever it takes to uh, medicate your mind away from the reality of your own life, your own existence, your own struggles, your guilt, your shame. And you know it's not good, you know it's not right, you know it's not healthy, and yet there you go again, proving yourself to be a lawbreaker. At your very core, you're a lawbreaker. Maybe you're the person who God has put these things in your heart, things you want to do with your life, things you want to do to pursue his calling, and yet again and again you find yourself, for lack of discipline, unwilling to move forward on those things. And the guilt of that just accumulates. You find, yeah, I know, I know God has called me to be this and become this and do this, and yet find myself again and again retreating, maybe out of fear or maybe I just let myself get too busy or whatever it is. I know this. I am a lawbreaker. I know what is right and I don't do it. So what is it that makes you a lawbreaker? And then I have a follow-up question. What is it that you think should happen to you as a result of your law breaking? What is it that you fear in, in, the, in, the, in the deepest part of your heart? What is it that you fear that God would let happen or even cause to happen to you because of your law breaking habits? What is the thing that you're pretty confident, not only could he and should he do, but he would be justified in doing because you know of your own disobedience? Should he allow you to be physically marred? Would that be fair? Would that be justice? How about despised? about forsaken, without a friend, alone? Would he be just in your life in response to your law-breaking to multiply sorrow and grief? Is that what you fear? Would he be just in striking you, afflicting you? oppressing you? What is it that you fear? What if God was, allow you, was to allow you to be physically injured, stabbed through? Would that be just punishment where you would feel like, okay, now we're even? What about brutally beaten, crushed, as in killed? What is it that you, that you fear in your heart, that you carry as a just expectation of a righteous God to allow in your life? The culmination of the Old Covenant, the law is this. We are all lawbreakers in need of rescue. 
And the promise of the new covenant, as highlighted in Isaiah 53, is this. God's exalted servant will come and bodily take upon himself the worst of what you could imagine would be God's penalty against evil and sin. That he will absorb all of that and take it all upon him. That's the promise of the new covenant. Just in case you missed it, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not see him, but here's the clincher. Surely our grief he bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his beating, by the, by the whipping, we are healed. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Everything that in, 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 the, in the secret part of your heart that you imagine that God would be just and bringing about upon your life for your sin has already been has absorbed in the body of Christ, crushed, killed, pierced through in the physical body of Christ so that punishment, so that sin, so that the consequence of being a lawbreaker has already been paid, not ignored, not discarded, not just fine, never mind, but all of that was, was absorbed in the body of Christ as punishment, as penalty. And guess what? There's nothing left. It's all paid. All of that sense of fear and dread and guilt and shame that you carry in your heart as a follower of Christ at the realization of your own law-breaking habits it's all a lie. It's all a lie of the enemy to keep you from enjoying the perfect gift of God's salvation and his righteousness. I want to make a couple of observations here. Three, quickly. God the Father and his Son wanted this outcome, that Jesus would suffer for your just penalty. says he did not open his mouth in protest, and it says that the Lord was pleased to crush him. It was the Lord's intention to grant his son the opportunity to carry this out. In fact, Galatians 5, verse 4, he's warning a group of believers 
who started out believing in the grace of God and then moved towards believing, yes, I know I was saved by faith, but now I got to prove myself to be righteous by meeting these requirements. He says to them, Galatians 5, 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. We think of fallen from grace as a, a phrase that's used to describe someone who was like, you know, really well-liked, and now they did something terrible, and now they're kind of scorned. No, fallen from grace meaning you had grace, you had received grace through Jesus, and you decided that it wasn't sufficient, and you went back to trying to prove yourself to be a law keeper. <laughs> Paul says, that's a terrible idea. You've been severed from the only hope that you have, which is Jesus Christ. It was always the plan that Jesus would suffer your just penalty so that you would be free from fear, that you would be free from shame. Some of you need to hear this this morning. God is not surprised at your failure. But if your failure is driving you away from him, the enemy is winning. When you properly understand the gospel, you fear not to look in the face of Christ. You fear not to look in the mirror. And in your failure, you run to him expecting mercy and grace. Number two. Our decision to go astray was a costly one. I have six children. And one of the things that you learn as a parent is that uh, can candy has consequences when you have kids. Like the selection of candy that your kids get a hold of comes with certain inherent consequences. So for example, I was at a basketball game. This was a little while back and sent my oldest responsible daughter. She's really the leader of the home. I sent her with my youngest son to the concession stand with a dollar for a snack. They came back and sat down, and my oldest had a little bit of a wry look on her face, a twinkle in her eye. And then my son pulled out a ring pop, which is basically attaching a sticky mess to your hand. And it was not any ring pop, it was a blue ring pop, which means in about three minutes, it's going to look like my son was punched in the mouth. You know, their lips turn all black. It's disgusting. <laughs> and then he pulled out a second ring pop because they're only 50 cents and he put it on his other hand. So now he's got two gobs of sticky blue mess, one on each hand. It's gross. Decisions have consequences.
Our decision to go astray was a costly one. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If you can go astray, then there is a right way to be going, right? So if you can go astray, the term astray means out of the right way to be going, the correct way. And there is a contemporary lie that is on repeat that I hear, uh, uh, especially through sort of popular culture and popular Christian culture, and it's this. God loves, God loves me just the way I am, so I need not change. That's stupid. In fact, there was this thing recently on the, on the, it made the news feed regarding the Bachelorette. And this is all very public. No, I don't watch the Bachelorette. <laughs> and I don't say that to like make myself morally superior, but if you watch it, I am. So. <laughs> no, I don't watch it because, honestly, because when you, when you, when you serve as someone in ministry, you see the reality of those, those horrible decision habits, those relational habits, you see them played out in people's lives and it's heartbreaking. And that's where it all begins is that craziness. Anyways, Bachelorette, she was confronted uh, for, for basically for sleeping around and then she had this famous quote that be, became part of their ads and this is what made the headline, uh, I have sex and Jesus still loves me. That's awesome, and it's absolutely true. It's also manipulative, deceitful, arrogant, and self-centered. Imagine applying that in any other relationship that we have. My wife loves me just the way that I am. Yeah, also, there's some areas you need to grow up in, Aaron Weiser, if you're going to love your wife. There's this lie that's on repeat that to love means to, to, to stay exactly the way that you are. That if someone loves me, they've given me permission to alter nothing. I love my children. There's a few things we're going to work on. Our decision to go astray is a costly one. It cost the Son of God his life. Number three, I'm going to invite the worship team up. Jesus was made great because of his sacrifice. And you can be too. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. You know what's interesting? So, I don't have time to get into it today, but Philippians 2 talks about that whole thing where Jesus, because he lowered himself, gave his life away, he will be elevated. We see that in the Old Covenant in Isaiah. We see it played out again in the New Covenant. Because of his sacrifice, he will be elevated. He will be made great. It never once says, because he was righteous, he will be made great. It's because of his sacrifice. Do you understand that in the Christian life, right now, as it stands between you and God, righteousness is simply the pathway of qualifying yourself to be there and available and able to give your life away when the opportunity comes. 
Righteousness was what qualified Jesus to lay his life down. If you want to lay your life down for your spouse and for your family, it will require you to do the things that righteous people do. It's the path of love. But the end of it all is not just that you would grow in righteousness. Once you die, that'll be squared away permanently. No, what we have opportunity for here and now in this life, in this brief window, is an opportunity to forfeit our lives for the sake of eternity. And yet here I am over here hung up on my own ability to meet whatever standard I've set for myself in my relationship with God and I'm, I'm so, I become consumed by it so much so that I actually turn away from God. I can't look in the mirror. I need to get this figured out so that I can come back to him with some sense of self-righteousness. Paul says, you severed yourself from Christ. Stop it. It's only by faith. It's God's grace. Walk in it. Enjoy it. Soak it up. And from that place of confidence in him, give your life away while you have a life to give. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? We have a couple of ways to respond. We celebrate uh, the work of Christ on the cross, the bodily death of Christ. He says, I want you to remember this every time that you gather together. Remember my death. So we have communion stations around the room. You can do that uh, as we worship. We're going to worship together. If you need prayer for any reason, we have prayer teams over here off to the side. They would love to pray with you. So as we worship the Lord, you can worship through giving uh, by dropping off your tithes, your offerings for the ministry of Church on the Rock. Let's pray together before we sing. God, would you drive out fear? Would you drive out shame and guilt? Would you drive out self-loathing and disappointment and show us the joy of walking in your grace with confidence. Teach us to live in the light of your perfect love for us. Today, Jesus wants to meet with you. In your experience with God, if when you come to the throne to meet with Jesus, and you have underneath it all, it's like, ah, but I'm guilty, Ugh, I don't know. He wants to take that today. So as Aaron was sharing this morning, if God was moving on your heart, now is the time. Now is the time. You can get prayer after the service, or grab a buddy and pray with them. Text a friend, whatever you need to do. If God was moving on your heart, respond to him this morning because he wants to meet you right where you're at. Amen? Amen. Awesome.